Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, this is Kevin, and I just kind of wanted to make an announcement before this episode. So this episode was recorded before the episode that I did with Jennifer. So if it sounds like I'm just meeting her for the first time, that's why. It's because it was, but we recorded this episode before her interview for the Addicted series. So just kind of wanted to give you guys a little bit of an explanation there, but also make an announcement that for the next couple of weeks, two or three weeks, I'm probably only going to be putting out one episode, if any episodes at all. I've got a lot going on in the background and I need to kind of focus on that for a little bit, but I will be putting out episodes for sure. Within the next couple of weeks, I've got a couple of interviews that I think have a lot of good, useful information to it. So definitely be on the lookout for those. I hope you guys are enjoying the Addicted series. I am so excited to announce that I'm at almost 100,000 downloads in less than two years. And that is amazing. That's because of you. And I thank you for listening. I thank you for joining me, for sticking with me on this journey. It's been an amazing ride. I have learned a lot. I've met an, an enormous amount of incredible people, and I'm just very, very thankful for, for you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. If you haven't left a review, please go leave a review. Let me know how I'm doing. You can send me an email, jerryroompodcast at gmail.com. Any kind of feedback, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. It all, it all helps. So with that being said, stay safe. And thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Well, welcome to the jury room podcast. On this episode, it's a little bit different. I didn't bring them on for an aftermath episode, and I didn't bring them on for an addicted episode. Kind of just brought them on to network, kind of meet new people on the podcasting space, right? I'm always looking to meet new people. Welcome to the show, guys. I'm glad to have you guys. Why don't you introduce yourselves and a little bit about your guys' podcast? Sure. Ladies first, Jen. Sure. My name is Jennifer Taylor. I am an attorney and the co-host of Vanished. And uh, I am Chris Williamson. I am the... I guess the creator of the show Vanished, and I'm the co-host for for Vanished as well. And I'm a I'm a podcaster. Been a podcaster for probably six, five, six years now. What made you guys want to get into podcasting, and how did you guys find each other? <laughs> uh, so I I I've just been doing. Uh, so I, I started with a podcast called Chasing Earhart. Um, it's 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 a dedicated Amelia Earhart podcast. It ran for several years, and uh, you know we might might bring it back. Uh, we'll see. But uh, that's how I sort of started with uh, with podcasting in general. And uh, I sort of had this idea for Vanished a long time ago and, and what became season one of the show with with uh, the Amelia Earhart investigation. And um, I reached out to Jen. Me and Jen are both fans of Astonishing Legends. And I sort of, you know, proposed this idea to Jennifer sort of out of the blue, just kind of sort of cold turkey in a way and uh, she was up for it started out with her sort of coming on the show and, and guesting and giving her professional opinion on sort of what we were presenting on the show and then it just was a natural fit she she uh, adapted really well and came aboard and she came in almost exactly at the halfway point of season one and uh, we've been together uh, on the show ever since and and uh, here we are so 
that's how we sort of started. Jennifer, what about you? What made you want to get into podcasting? Well, he basically told the story. I was not really, I didn't, I didn't podcast at all until Vanished. So yeah, I was kind of out of the blue. Chris reached out to me and asked me to interview for his show. He asked me to interview. He was, you know, I had heard of Chasing Earhart, but he had asked me to come on an interview for Vanished. And I was just like, I don't really know anything about Earhart. Sorry. And, but he convinced me to come on and he really was mostly asking me like legal questions. And then from there, we just kind of kept talking about it. And he kind of had this idea of wanting to take a legal courtroom style approach to the different theories of Vanished. So we or the different Amelia Earhart disappearance theories that he was presenting and Vanished. And so we talked about it a little bit more and kind of fleshed out a plan for how that would actually sound and how that would actually like work out. And just from there, I eventually became a co-host of the show and helped him craft the trial by jury format that we do for all of the cases that we cover. What kind of law do you practice, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, I don't mind at all. So I used to practice criminal defense. I'm now more in civil litigation still as a defense attorney, but I don't do, I'm not in the criminal justice world anymore, at least as of right now. So Jennifer, were you a fan of true crime before you got into Vanished or was it something (laughs) that's always been in the, like your, I don't know, your thing or whatever you want to call it? Oh, I was. I definitely was. I grew up watching forensic files and things like that. Even, you know, in high school as a kid, I was part of the serial craze whenever that podcast came out I was listening to it and waiting on new episodes to drop I'm yeah no I'm I've I've always been a big true crime fan um there you know whenever I was working in it whenever I was a criminal defense attorney I was still interested in it I still enjoyed it but I consumed it a little less just because it, it it's different when you're actually in that world but now that I'm not, that's not my day to day anymore. I've actually started getting into it a little bit more, and I listen to a little bit more podcasts now than I did six months ago. What about you, Chris? Were you always into true crime? Not always. I I have an a, an immense respect for true crime podcasters, and you know how they immerse themselves in these in these cases and in these really hard to uh, really uncomfortable situations. In a lot of these cases, it's it's really difficult. So I, I I'm sort of on the outside of that. I have a lot of respect for it. We we certainly with the show have dipped sort of our foot into true crime a little bit. I, I like to say that the, the show has got a little bit of a true crime flavor on it, uh, with, especially when it comes to certain cases that we cover. But uh, I wasn't particularly a, a, a fan of true crime podcasting prior to sort of uh, beginning my, I guess, my podcasting career, for lack of a better term at this point. But, um, you know, I just I kind of fell into it and uh, started with Gen Y and and it really just sort of like snowballed from there. And I've, I've just sort of built up this real immense respect for everybody who, who partakes in, in the true crime genre. It's, it's a difficult genre. And um, I, I'm, I'm happy to stay sort of on the outskirts of it and sort of just dip my my toes. And, you know, when I really want to and then kind of, you know, kind of run back, <laughs> you know, to, to historical mystery and stuff. Right. What's been besides the um, Amelia Earhart case, right? Because that's what your one of your main focuses. What's been the craziest case that you guys have covered to date? Oh, I'll God. I mean, we, yeah, <laughs> I, we'll, we'll probably have different opinions of this. I, you know, I, I think uh, everything we cover is 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 pretty nuts when you when you get into the cases, like in the actually into the nitty gritty of it. I, I think the as far as sort of what really sort of consumed and overwhelmed me, I'd, I'd have to say Jack the Ripper. When we did Jack the Ripper, we had done, I had done nothing but Earhart, keep in mind up to that point. And we opened season two now, uh, what's now season two with Jack the Ripper. And that was, um, Jen was sort of had to enlighten me on that case. I had 
I was very ignorant to how large that case was or is, I should say. And, uh, you know, I, I actually remember specifically, very vividly, in fact, that we were it was the night before we recorded part one of of Jack the Ripper. And it was right before Halloween. And I I had seen uh, the crime scene, the Mary Jane Kelly crime scene photos for the very first time. I didn't even know they had crime scene photos at the time. Like that just really displays my ignorance of kind of that case. And I remember I wanted to sort of stay as, as sort of raw as I could on that. And so that particular case is probably the the most insane, probably the craziest, darkest case we've ever covered so far. I mean, I think some cases in season three will challenge that maybe, but that was it for me. Jack the Ripper all the way. What about you, Jennifer? Well, I have a little bit of a personal bias, but my favorite case that we've covered is John Wilkes Booth. And that's because I ended up marrying one of the guests that came onto the show. And so now my entire office is covered in John Wilkes Booth memorabilia. <laughs> that's what we do here. We make marriages happen, baby. That's what we do. I mean, that's really fucking sweet, though, right? Like, that's uh, that's one of those, I guess, storybook romances, right? Oh, I was podcasting and then I met my husband. Like, that's awesome. It is a really, really cute story. So the the John Wilkes Booth angle, the reason why we ended up covering it on the show is because there is a theory out there that the story is that John Wilkes Booth didn't die in the barn, wasn't shot at, you know, at the Garrett farm like history says he was. In fact, he got away. Someone else died in his place. He lived under an assumed name in Granbury, Texas. The He went by the name of John St. Helen. He thought he was going to die. And so on his deathbed, confessed to being John Wilkes Booth, recovered, and then moved, at some point ended up in Enid, Oklahoma, now going by a, yet another alias. I think it's, what was that alias? David E. George. David, David, David e. George. E. George. Yeah. And then committed suicide. And I don't think there was a deathbed confession on the Oklahoma part of it. I think it was that Finus Bates had recognized him and was like, oh, that was my client. And he confessed to me whenever he was living as John Santa. But it's a crazy story. It's an interesting story. There was a mummy that came out of it that went all a real mummy that was on tour of this traveling freak show. So it was it's an interesting case. But when we had my now husband on the show, he was helping me. We always do this trial by jury thing, right? So Chris and I will take opposing sides. And I had taken the side that was basically like, no, this, there's no evidence to back up this conspiracy theory. John Wilkes Booth ended, you know, his life ended in the way that we always thought that he was. And so, um, his name is Dave. Dave came onto the show to, he was, he's a Booth researcher. And so he was helping me defend this this story or this you know the historical story and so i live in texas and whenever he moved out here and we got engaged and then got married we actually decided to go get married in granberry texas because it has a connection to the story and there's all this john st helen touristy cute stuff in granberry really really pretty little small town that i love so much the lake is pretty and and it was it's great but there's, you know, there's booth stuff there. So that's why we went there. <laughs> that's so awesome. Like, I first of all, congratulations on getting married. That's exciting, right? Thank you. Thank you. No, that's that's really sweet. So we've talked about your crazy cases and stuff like that and what, why you guys got into podcasting. Why Amelia Earhart? Why, what's your fascination with that? Mm, I, I don't, I don't, I, well, I won't speak for Jen. I don't, I don't know that Jen's fascinated. Well, uh, maybe she is. Um, uh, for me personally, it's just been a lifelong thing. You know, it, it, it started with me very young as it does with most kids who sort of are introduced to Earhart at a younger age. She sort of is one of those names that, that are floated, uh, you know, by kids second and third grade and fourth grade in that time frame for the first time. And, it, it, you know, it's not not uh, different with me at all. I mean, I, I did a third grade project on her, a history day project, and I just kept 
I remember I just kept coming back to it. It was one of those things that even as a kid, I was sort of fascinated by, but of course, couldn't understand the, you know, the whole situation or, you know, all that good stuff and had these sort of, you know, thoughts about her just sort of flying off into the sunset, not really, you know, not really ever dying and sort of the, the spirit living on type, you know, the, the kind of things that kids sort of uh, have the freedom to think, you know, and it, really for lack of a better term there. So um, it just started becoming a, a bigger and bigger deal as I got older and I got into college, started writing papers on her. Uh, ironically enough, sort of left my uh, consciousness for a little while um, back in 2000. I don't even know now, seven or eight or nine, <laughs> somewhere in that area. I started sort of thinking about the idea of doing a, a project that would become Chasing Your Heart, which would become the podcast slash documentary that we shot um, a couple years back. And um, that's kind of where it's always been. Earhart's always been sort of in the back of my mind. It's and it's as I've done Chasing Earhart, as I've done Vanished, especially um, it, it just, you know, it just got deeper and deeper. The rabbit hole gets bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, you just sort of can't get out of it. It's one of those cases that just even if you step away for a while or for for a time, it'll sort of has a, a knack for sort of pulling you back in. Um, you know, not unlike any of the cases we cover, really. But Earhart, I think, is special because it's it's such a big story, and it's it's you know, if it was solved tomorrow, it would be such a big deal. So um, yeah, that's it's just one of those things. You know, you just you can't you can't shake it. And I've certainly been a victim of that, and I'm you know happy to be in that position now at this point. Jennifer, what about you? Are you as fascinated with Earhart as Chris is, <laughs> or is it kind of on the back burner for you? Certainly not on the back burner. I don't know if I can claim that I'm as into the case as Chris is, but it is definitely been a time-consuming and fascinating case. It is. I really love mysteries. I, lo- I really love trying to solve mysteries, and this is a pretty big one. And I think what's interesting to me about it is that even though it's such an old case, it's been a mystery that's been unsolved for many, many decades. There are a lot of people that are still working on it and are making good progress on working on it. And it actually seems very possible that the mystery will be solved within my lifetime, which is really exciting to me. And I've really been really excited to even be a small part of that and be able to to cover it and to talk to people that are working boots on the ground on it and have actually been out physically to these locations where they think the plane might be, actually physically looking for it, have actually touched physical evidence. It's been really cool to, to talk to those people and become friends with those people and just even in a really small way, be a part of Amelia Earhart's story. That's been really, really cool. But apart from her disappearance, I really, well, I think I'll always remain fascinated with her as a person because in the time that she lived, women didn't leave their homes and do the things that she did. And even today, she's still very much an inspiration for not just women in STEM, but pretty much any woman that wants to occupy a space that men tell her she can't occupy. So I'm, I think I'm always going to be fascinated with her life. So you guys usually take opposing sides, right? So let's hear your guys' theories. Chris, what's your theory as to what happened to Amelia Earhart? Uh, it's going to be a different theory almost every day. Um, for me, I feel like okay for today then for for today. Uh, so you know, I, 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 gosh, this is kind of hard. It always Chris, I'd like to hear you defend Irene Bolum. Go ahead, go. Yeah, so we have multiple theories in this case, and it's you know it's one of those cases that it's it's really fascinating in that way. You have the uh, what's called the crash and sink hypothesis, and that's kind of what they're all basically are. They're all hypotheses, and uh, the that idea is that it's backed by the U.S. government. The idea that she was close to Howland, they were uh, just as as intended, and she was reaching out to the Atasca, trying to make establish two way communication with them. It's that's really important. That comes in comes into play later, and she was never able to successfully establish 
two-way communication. It was just basically her calling out and, and them calling to her, but they weren't able to hear each other. And the whole idea was that she ran out of fuel just shy of Howland Island within 200 miles, maybe 100 miles out, uh, you know, somewhere in that area. Uh, we don't know exactly where. And uh, if you ask anybody uh, for an official statement from the U.S. government side of things, that's what they'll say. And I think um, as Jen so uh, expertly sort of pointed out, and it never occurred to me, if this was a modern day jury trial case, the Itasca call logs, those would be the final text messages from the victim. You know, the last time we ever hear from Amelia Earhart in any way, shape or form officially. And so I, until somebody brings forward something that's really earth shatteringly, uh, you know, big, then I think that's sort of the one to beat. It's sort of the one that you have to sort of lean on. However, there are other ones, Bill Snavely and Project Blue Angel, and, and you know, they're out in Buka and they have a really good, interesting theory, the idea that she may be turned around and uh, didn't you know realize that she couldn't make it uh, based off the gas that they were already burning, the unanticipated headwinds and all that good stuff um, that is plays a really big deal in um, in the entirety of the case. And she crash lands off of Buka, this island, this little island that's about it, it's it's about the halfway point roughly between. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's a little under the halfway point between Howland Island and Lay New Guinea, where she was going from you know leaving from one and going to another and uh that plane rests in less than 150 feet of water right now but unfortunately it's covered it's wrapped in a coral shell a very thick coral shell and it's in one of the most uh you know unstable nautical environments on the face of the earth and so bill snavely and, and his team project blue angel they think they have they know they have a plane they think they might have the plane they you know they're not sure uh we're not sure but um that's really fascinating because every you have for 85 years, you have everybody looking for a plane and Bill Snavely is sort of the only one that's ever found a plane. Um, contrary to what people will say, he's the only one that's officially found a plane that's got a plane wrapped into, the, into their theory. So I look at those two as sort of going back and forth between one and two, depending on sort of what you, uh, you know, how I'm feeling, you know, on, on, a, on a given day. I feel like if they get out there, you know, the 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 plane at Buka is sort of the elephant in the room. So if they get they need to get out there and sort of rule that out, at least so we can strike that off the list and kind of move forward. And until they do, I think that's like I said, that's that's a really huge deal. That's a really glaring thing. Um, Japanese capture, uh, the idea that she was captured by the Japanese has got really compelling evidence to sort of support it. That's the initial question I asked Jennifer way back when I said, Hey, if I've got if I'm prosecuting a case and I've got 200 witnesses to a murder uh, or 200 connections to a murder, you know, is that a slam dunk? That's how we sort of opened our off the record conversation when her and I started talking about the show. So that that is a huge umbrella. Uh, it's been going on since 1960 when Fred Gurner went out to the Marshall Islands and investigated for the first time. And uh, so that's that's really compelling. Irene Bolum is sort of like a choose your own adventure. It's like an alternate ending to that. The whole idea is, you know, on one side, she lives on the other side, she di uh, she dies. And the whole idea was that with Irene Bolum is, is that she was repatriated back into the United States, that she was actually in custody, Japanese custody for quite some time and actually made it back and had the abilities and the connections to make it back. And what's really compelling about that is if anybody in the on the face of the earth at that time would have the connections to make it back or have the ability to set something like that up, uh, it would be Earhart because Earhart was really close with FDR, who was the president, uh, even closer with Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the first lady, and she had all these contacts. And so I think that she would have been a very vital uh, person to go and, and rescue. And so I think, you know, Bolum is, while it's very fascinating, it's, it's really out there. That's, I think that has the steepest hill to climb, but I'm always, I've always been a really big fan of that theory because I feel like the ones that don't get the most spotlight or just kind of get laughed off, you know, uh, off the record, essentially, I, I think are the ones that, uh, you should start with because I think those are the most fun. And, and the Bolum case has got a ton of crazy, 
you know, uh, twists and turns in it. So, you know, right now I'd say Crash and Sink. I'd say Bukas. Those two were the really the top three. Uh, and I'd say Japanese Capture, um, Irene Bolum. And uh, God, what's the fifth one that we came up with that we did? Castaway. On... Oh, that's goes to show Even you there's another one. There's another one, Castaway. Uh, the idea that she was her and Noonan sort of couldn't find a Howland and they went. Uh, they basically veered about 400 miles or ish away from uh, from Howland and, and sort of happened on this island that was at the time called Gardner Island. It's now called Nika Mororo. And it's that's a theory that's headed up by uh, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, TIGER for short. Um, that's the acronym. And they've been investigating that island for 34, almost 40 years now. Uh, 13 or 14 expeditions out to that island, uh, most recently with uh, Bob Ballard of Titanic fame in tow uh, to sort of help them try to assist them on closing the door or, you know, cracking it wide open, depending on who you talk to. And um, but I, I feel like, in, you know, I won't speak for Jim, but I feel like we we really give a lot of effort, um, not only in the show, but in the upcoming book. It's there's 100 pages out of a 500 page book dedicated to that theory. We really went hard on that theory, Jen, especially, and she can talk to that Um that experience but um i think that's probably you know that's probably the least i would put that even that one's been thoroughly debunked i think that there has been a lot of evidence thoroughly debunking that theory this is the one that national geographic covered and so there was a pretty recent documentary where they did take bob ballard out there and they searched the area and they didn't find anything and they've not been able to find anything in the years that they have been researching it but they will periodically come forward claiming that they have new evidence and almost all of the time it's old evidence it's something from the 90s that they're making new claims about a really famous one is um, there were the bones for a while where they had found human remains and then way back in the what was it 40s 1940s or something. yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. they had taken measurements and this was before obviously like DNA and stuff so they're taking measurements and they're trying to extrapolate from the measurements that they're taking whether or not it's a male or a female or of what ethnicity a lot of like real junk sciencey stuff but then the bones themselves go missing but then like they're still writing papers about it and they're still coming out with quote unquote new evidence which is really just most of the time it's a reanalysis of old evidence. Another really good example is what they call their artifact. What was it? Two two v one or like whatever yep. numerical yep. designation yep. they give to yep. it. And yeah. it's it's a piece of aluminum. It's, it's a square. It's a, it's almost a perfectly square shaped piece of aluminum with rivets panel. in it. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. yeah. And what they'll do is they'll hold it up to an airplane. That looks like, you know, they'll, they'll show you pictures of the airplane and they'll see, look, this panel, doesn't it look like it kind of fits right here? Doesn't it look like this is a, this is a piece of the airplane? And like, they have absolutely no, like, there's no real evidence that that is a piece of her plane. There's nothing on there that you can identify as being hers. There were many aircraft that went down on that island during World War II. So there's, I mean, it's so much, in fact, that the local villagers had started dragging in aircraft debris off the beach and using it in their village and repurposing it. And so it's just, it's just a piece of scrap aluminum. But every, like, it got debunked in the 90s. And so 10, 20 years later, they they bring it out into the news again. Like, we found new evidence. And it's not new evidence. It's the same evidence that every now and then they recycle so that they can keep their theory in the news and i have a lot of thoughts about about this theory and about nick Moro, but it, in my opinion it's been debunked over and over and over again and yet for some reason it is it tends to be the theory that gets the most media coverage which is baffling to me because national geographic picked it up you know right 
Right. Yeah. Well, and National Geographic's been with, you know, been sort of in bed with Tiger for a long time. They funded a lot of their expeditions or, you know, developed a lot of their expeditions out there. And what's interesting about what she just said is, is that, um, you know, Rick Gillespie, people in Tiger, people with every theory, I mean, I'm not going to, I won't single out any one person. I'll just say every, a lot of people will say um, that, oh, you know, that, that particular theory that your theory X, Y, or Z, or whatever, has been thoroughly debunked. It's, it's been thir- like the Irene Bolan thing's been thoroughly debunked. Japanese capture has been thoroughly debunked. Yet here we are. Uh, you know, there's all these different theories and it's like, they're always sort of coming back at you. And this is only, you know, there's, there's honestly probably a, a dozen different theories. There's, there's a theory that there's multiple planes involved that there was, you know, it, the case itself gets really, really crazy. And I think at the center of this case is, as Jen mentioned earlier, there's, there's this icon, there's this woman who was like at the center of it, you know, unlike everything we've done, um, you know, in the show so far, we've, we've covered Amelia Earhart and then we've covered just a bunch of really bad people. You know, you got John Wilkes Booth, you got DB Cooper, you got Jack the Ripper, you know, you got all these people that are just inherently Apparently, you know, a dark and evil people in some cases. And then you got Earhart, who's at really the center of the biggest historical mystery ever. And um, I think that's that's part of why it sort of continues to endure uh, and, and people sort of defend these theories, uh, you know, to the hill is because it's been, you know, 85 years this year. And we really don't have a whole lot more information than we did on January 3rd of 1937, the day after she disappeared. Uh, we have a lot of theory, July. a lot of speculation. July. July sorry. July. <laughs> yeah, I should know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we have a lot of theory, lots of speculation, plenty of that. Uh, we could go, you know, forever with that, but not a whole lot of uh, a hardcore evidence other than those Atasca call logs, which I, like I said, you go back to those and you kind of have to, you kind of have to float those in front of every other theory until somebody puts something out there. That's more, uh, you know, incredible than that. Jennifer, which theory do you lean towards? Irene Bolum. She's um, going to tell you right now. Yeah. So I, I tend to shy away from anything that gets too conspiracy theory. Cause here's the thing about Irene Bolum and not even just that one, but a lot of these theories require like a government conspiracy and a, and a vast cover up. I mean, cause it's kind of impossible, right. For her to have come back to the United States and be repatriated and for the government not to be lying and covering stuff up. Like that's a part of the, a very integral part of that theory. And I'm just not really a conspiracy theorist. Now I, I, I understand that there have been some conspiracy theories that have been proven correct. And I'm not going to sit here and and, and say I, I, I will refuse to believe anything. I mean, I'll, I'll, I think all of the theories are interesting. But as far as practically speaking, like what do I actually find credible? I do tend to lean more towards crash and sink. And the reason why is because that is kind of the evidence that we have right now. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing that could change my mind, but it will take more evidence, right? It will take someone coming forward with either a new find or genuine new pieces of physical evidence for me to change where I'm leaning. And the, the evidence that we have right now is we have the Itasca logs. We know that she was, we don't know exactly how close she was to Itasca or not yet to the Itasca. We know that she thought she was within 200, 100 miles because that is what she said. But she also was saying that she couldn't see the Itasca, there were smoke coming up, um, trying to, so that, you know, they were trying to help her find them. And the Itasca, by the way, if you aren't familiar with the case, she was going to Howland Island and Howland Island is very, very small. And so there was a ship off the coast that was going to help guide her in. That was their only purpose for being there. So she was looking for the ship in order to help her find the landing strip on the island. And she thought that she was supposed to be close. She was obviously close enough that they were getting her transmissions in and they could hear her, but she wasn't close enough for that she could actually see the ship. And so we don't really know where she was. I personally believe that if they had been able to establish two-way communication, we wouldn't be here today. She would have either made it or we would have known exactly where she was. I think that if their radio was working, 
things would have been so, so, so different. Um, she did say that she was almost out of gas, but there is a lot of disagreement over what she meant by that. Some people think I'm almost, she, what I think the exact words were running low on fuel. And if she was gas running low running on low. fuel, yeah. oh, That's gas right. is running low. So if yeah, she said gas is running low, right. If she's, if she says I'm right here and she says gas is running low and then we no longer hear from her. The only evidence we have is that that is where she was because that is where she told us she was. And so that is where I lean. There are going to be people that tell you when she said gas is running low, she didn't mean on empty. She meant gas is running too low for us to be able to like make a safe landing or gas is running gas is running past a threshold point where I now have to change my mind and go do go fly somewhere else. And so like for example, the Nicomaroro guys will tell you that she had reached a decision, gas was low, she knew she had enough to kind of get to another island and so she, that's what she did. And she did have enough gas to make it all the way over to Nikomororo Island. The Japanese capture people will tell you the same. In their version of events, their hypothesis that says that she physically landed the plane in the Marshall Islands, which you'd have to kind of turn around and go back a little bit from where she was uh, headed. So she would not have had enough gas to do that if she was running out of gas. But so some people interpret those words to mean different things. Unfortunately, we can't know what she meant because she hadn't established two-way communication with anyone and because we weren't there. And so in my mind, we can't we can't put meaning where we're not given like we don't we're not given enough information. It requires way too much speculation. And I just I know that we go into a lot of detail on all of the evidence that people have that she was spotted in Japan or she, you know, her remains were spotted in Nikamaruro. We go into all of that evidence in a lot of detail, so I'm not going to bore you with that now, but I just find the most credible evidence to be the Itasca logs. And until something compelling comes forward to explain how she got so far away from Howland Island, that is where I believe she's most likely going to. Okay, so we talked about the serious theories, right? What is or what are some of the craziest conspiracy theories that you guys have kind of either debunked or have discovered in your journey of the Amelia Earhart case? Mm, uh, well, I, I think Bolam is probably the biggest one for me personally, because it just gets really get that gets really crazy um, personally. But yeah, go for it, Jen. What else? So in this house, we're Star Trek fans. And <laughs> there is. <laughs> I was going to say, is, is there, is there an aliens conspiracy somewhere? I mean, there has to be an alien. There's always one, right? an aliens there conspiracy absolutely, everywhere. Absolutely. Like, we obviously didn't cover that on the show. And obviously, but I right. believe there are people that take that theory very seriously. There is a an episode of Star Trek Voyager where they go to this uh, planet and they find a like a like a vault that has several humans in cryogenesis and they 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 open up the vault and they they get these humans out and one of them is Amelia Earhart another one is Fred Noonan and they learn through the course of this episode that there's a group of people on this planet called <laughs> was it the 37s is that what they yeah. called them yeah, yeah I think something so. like that it, and the idea was that around that time period a bunch of aliens came in and started just abducting a bunch of people and then bringing them over to this other island in order to populate the island and so there's a thriving living population of people but they had 
still had some of the original humans kind of still in storage. And so they found <laughs> Amelia Earhart and they were like, oh, this is what happened. She was abducted by aliens. And it's a completely ridiculous theory that I do believe some people... Oh, and, the, and I don't know if you've seen the episode, Chris. It seems like you have, but Japanese capture yeah. oh, got yeah. a... Yeah, Japanese capture got a, a, a head nod in there. Mm. They Because they were yeah. like... They, yeah, um, Janeway was talking to her and she was like, yeah, there have been all these theories that you were like working with the U.S. government and you were there trying to spy on the Japanese. And she You're was right. like, who told you that? How did you know that? Uh-huh. It, was, it was just really cute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So that has to be my favorite unreasonable theory out there. Hollow Earth, you fools. Hollow Earth. That's where I'm going. <laughs> right. I think Hollow, I think hollow Earth is into it. A, yeah. She just yeah. fell into the the whatever portal and now she's in the yeah <laughs> into the ether yeah and then she just yeah I, I, yeah i mean there's a lot of crazy stuff out there with their heart there's, uh, there, there's also like a paranormal side to it too there's a lot there's been books written about you know people who claim that i was amelia Earhart, like in a former lot you know people that really dive into that and dig into that um and there's a lot of like people that are you know they do seances trying to contact amelia Earhart and supposedly hearing directly from her that oh this is what happened and this is where the plane's actually at you know that, well, that kind say? of stuff uh, I mean, it's different every time. That's the thing. It's a, it's, it's, it's not even, uh, it's, it's, you it's know, if it was all consistent. like, yeah, if it was all cohesive, like across the board, I'd say, let's go look at one of these spots for whatever reason, but it's, it's like a different spot. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just like everything else. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things that can go, you know, very, uh, this, this case has it all. It's got, you know, very rigid scientifically based, you know, uh, scientifically backed theory and, and hypothesis and, and all this. And then it just goes to a lot of different out there stuff that, uh, what's really fascinating about it, uh, for the show, you know, f- from a show approach is that we got to, uh, really put different types of evidence, um, sort of on trial, you know, a different, different experts. We got, we got to sort of go into different areas and that was really a lot of fun because it, it gets it gives us sort of the ability to sort of challenge uh sort of challenge the evidence and and uh, and really sort of play the devil's advocate which is i think what the show has become very well known for uh is is you know hey we will talk about this we will give you the room give you the platform but you know this is our, our listeners are our, our active jury, so to speak. So if you're listening to all this evidence and this mock trial, you know, hey, if you're sitting in a jury box, what's going to what's going to sell you? You know, what what is is it the overwhelming amount of of scientific evidence and the Itasca call logs or, or you know, whatever it is? Is it uh, handwriting analysis? Is it photographic overlay? Is it you know, what do you like? What what speaks to you? And I think uh, that's why the, the show sort of had such a, a, a reactory uh, effect, you know, within the Earhart community and then, of course, outside the Earhart community to the general audience, too. So you guys took it from a show to a book. How did that process come about and what's the name of the book and is it out yet? Yeah, not yet. Uh, we're we're on the home stretch. The book is called Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And it's going to be, it's published by Beyond the Fray uh, Publishing. And uh, that will be out on July 2nd on the 85th anniversary. We're going to take advantage of that date. I think it's, it's a really special, important date for me. It always has been. And so we're going to release it then. The whole idea of the book was really just, I started getting, you know, probably a, a couple of months into the show initially, I started getting people that were saying, hey, you know, this would, I would really love to have like a, a written transcript of this or like a written version of this. Because a lot of people within the Earhart community, they, they don't, um, they don't necessarily consume their content with audio and podcasts and stuff. So, uh, you know, it just started getting sort of those chips and just started those people were sort of nibbling and just saying, hey, you know, we really would love to have a transcript. Do you have a transcript of this? Um, and I just I just kept thinking about it. And then some people started saying, hey, you know, you should do a book like this would be a really cool book, like to hold tangibly and sort of read and consume that way. Um, and so all of a sudden it just seemed possible. And I think after we, you know, I started editing um, some of the original audio and 
that was the biggest challenge by far was was converting this from something you hear to something you read because I mean we when you listen to us uh, you know even now as as podcasters it's there's you know we live in like compound you know sentences and questions and things like that it's really difficult to sort of like um, string those together and make those cohesive sentences in a book format without taking uh, you know too much out of context and making sure that people can't sort of nail you to the cross and say oh you didn't you know you didn't understand what I meant or whatever the case is so it took me about about two years of editing almost on this um, and uh, we went I went real hard on it in the last probably the last year solid. Um, and then we signed, I signed with beyond the fray and, and they, they're excited about it and we're full steam ahead. So July 2nd is when the book comes out and it's sort of like a, a, a rehash. It's, it's definitely the written transcript, but it's also got a lot of brand new retrospective in there from people that were involved in the show. My own thoughts, uh, Jen wrote the forward, uh, graciously wrote the forward for me. Um, and it's, it's something we're putting out sort of the next evolution of, of the show. And, and hopefully we'll do more books uh, based off the show at, at some point. We'll see. So you said that's coming out on the 85th anniversary. Are you guys like advertised? Where can they find that book at? Yeah. So pre-order will, I don't know when pre-order will hit typically pre-order. It's like two weeks to a month before it comes out. So pretty soon uh, we'll have pre-order links, all of our websites and our Facebook group. Uh, We have a pretty active Facebook group with um, about 600 members that including a lot of people that were on the show, a lot of experts that were on the show, which is, you know, makes for some interesting conversation, Uh, but we'll have it. We're getting ready to, I'm I'm working sort of behind the scenes, developing uh, the, I don't think even Jen knows this, but developing the brand new Amelia Earhart society website. Um, And that's we're, we're transferring all of sort of, the the entirety of the archive no i don't think i've said this publicly yet but the entirety of the chasing our heart podcast archive to that website um all of season one of vanish because it's focused primarily on Earhart, not on the show itself uh but season one of vanish will be there and then also we're going to try to work with um some large photographic archives to see if we can bring some of that in um and and sort of rebuild the original amelia Earhart society from from way back when because there's there's some there's quite a few living members of the Amelia Earhart Society alive still. And it's sort of like a, a, a torch passing thing, you know, where I'm going to sort of at a certain point, I'll hand it over to somebody to run and I'll, I'll, I'll try, I'll try. I've said this before publicly, but I'll try to step back from the case um, and, and stay gone or stay, stay in the, in the, in the way background shadows um, and not sort of, you know, front and center. Like I've sort of ha- had to be for the book and for the show and everything. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what's on my plate for this. Well, no, that's exciting. I mean, What's that process been like for you guys writing a book? I mean, because I've never written a book, so I, I would I not even know where to begin. But what's that process been like for you guys? Uh, well, it's been tough. Uh, it, it's 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 very it's very daunting. Uh, Jen Jen wrote the forward, a beautiful forward for it. Um, it. It's it's a collaborative piece. So the original process for chasing Earhart for the documentary was to have all these experts, the largest you know collection of experts ever assembled on the life and disappearance of Earhart, the lore, the legacy, all that good stuff. And um, this is really sort of my uh, sort of evolved vision of that, you know, a, a version of that original idea that from 20 years ago, uh, you know, and so it was just a it's just a lot of very tedious tedious editing and you know it's 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 mountainous because some of these episodes we do are four hours four and a half hours long Holy you know shit. you you, tra- you translate at it that into pages and all of a sudden you got 150 pages for one episode of the show and so uh and i, and I didn't i really tried uh very hard not to cut or to, to cut as little fat as i could you know if you know i would there was very little that is uh not in the book 
or that was in the original show. I took it from the original raw recording. So there's some stuff that's in the book that was not in the show that didn't make the show, uh, which is pretty interesting. And that, that, that gave me sort of a, 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 a fun trip back down, down memory lane to sort of go through and re-listen to the original show. And I hadn't listened to those episodes for a couple of years. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a fun journey, but just lots of, lots of work, a mountain of work. And, um, I'm glad that part's behind me now. It's, it's, um, looking back on it now in retrospect, it, it was very hard. Right. Uh, Jen, I know you got to go. So I usually ask my guests a question before we go, before you go, would you mind okay. answering it before you go? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? A sandwich condiment. Okay. 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 Mustard, because she's sour all the time. <laughs> also, I was going to say honey mustard, because ah, my kids really like honey mustard. <laughs> I was close, damn it. So, like, they will, like, kill some people to get their hands on honey mustard. <laughs> if only I could be loved by them that much. So, honey mustard it is. <laughs> I love it. I love Did it. Did you say your kids could love you more? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think there's I a want, deeper I, problem there. I just there. need their attention. <laughs> yeah, it was a deeper problem she just admitted I, on the I show. I need to be able to hold their attention. That or spicy ketchup. Yeah. They will also probably Ooh. murder someone Ooh. for some spicy ketchup. I think my son would go on a, a killing spree with them alongside him for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer, where can they find you at and all your contact information if they wanted to find you and, you know, get a link to your show? Uh, so there's a ton of places you can find me. I'm obviously the co-host of Vanish. So reaching out through at Vanished Pod will eventually get to me, although you're probably going to go through Chris as he runs all of that social media. I am personally on Twitter at at DiceJailJen. And I also regularly or semi-regularly stream on Twitch. And that is going to be at twitch.tv slash DiceJailJen. Uh, I do a lot of actual play D&D. I do a lot of like TTRPG stuff. And so I, I, I'm on a number of those podcasts as well. But if you go check out my Twitter, you can see where all you can find me if you're into D&D. Perfect, Jen. Thanks for coming on. I've I've learned a lot and I look forward to having another conversation with you again for sure. No, I'm super fascinated. Like I I, I haven't I'm not gonna lie to you. I didn't listen to any of you guys' show. I kind of went no, into it okay. blind a little bit because I wanted to kind of just get the full experience, right? And that's the best so way to do it. Yeah. I feel like like that the Amelia Earhart is so it's so fascinating, right? Because I honestly I don't know a whole lot about it. So just hearing you guys talk about it, like I definitely am gonna go binge season one now of your ah, guys' show so I honored. can yeah. so I can learn about it. But what's a piece of information for somebody maybe who doesn't know a whole lot about it that they could take away from it? Like kind of like the long story short kind of version to it, like some kind of nugget of information that somebody does who's never heard of it would could pick apart from it. Yeah, I, it's a good question. Excellent question. I I I think you know, it, that, that, that's, that, that's a tough question. I think you have to start with um, who this woman was and why, why her life continues to matter so much. You know, this is a woman, she was 39 years old when she disappeared. Uh, she, only, she only flew for nine years. So it doesn't seem like a, a very long amount of time when you look at like, you know, how, how people fly for 30, 40 years and have really lengthy careers now. But she was flying during the golden age of aviation. She walked away from 11 crashes in her career. Uh, you know, this is a woman that was very... Um, you know, she was very fearless. Uh, there's no other word to describe it, really. She, you know, she was a she flew by the seat of her pants. She absolutely wasn't the best pilot in the world. But that was, you know, I mean, again, her own admission. She'll say that during the 1929 air uh, air derby, she said Florence Klingensmith and Ruth Elder. I mean, they could fly circles around her around her. But she had a 
I, I I compare her to Marilyn Monroe a lot, and people sort of give me the side eye when I when I say that when I first say it. But what I really you know the reason why I do that or the reason why I say that is because Marilyn Monroe was sort of like uh, you know was this large in a life icon and she could she could turn that iconography on like a switch like she could just you know okay should i you know should i do this you know she could turn it on she could be really obviously she was a very different person behind the scenes she was had a lot of insecurity she was very coy she was very um you know, sort of, I think introverted, you know, is, is a good word. Earhart, uh, you know, is a lot like that in, in a way. She was very, um, you know, she had that very sort of, sort of uh, shy grin, that shy smile. She was very, uh, she, you had to sort of coax her out, but she could also just turn it on for reporters and turn it on for the media. And she was a darling. She was, uh, you know, she was, um, she was backed by her husband, who was uh, very famous, George Palmer Putnam, who actually, worked very uh, closely with Charles Lindbergh and who had who had published Charles Lindbergh's autobiography five years prior to Earhart, uh, you know, working with Earhart. And and so she was this this larger than life icon that endorsed all of these products and, you know, would would make these appearance where 10, 20,000 people would come out onto the steps of a, you know, a, a, of a of a courthouse or of a, a capital of a city and, and they would come see her. And so she was, you know, she was very well loved. She loved kids, but she could also cuss like a Marine Corps D.I. She could hang with the men, but she could be very ladylike. Um, she could walk a really interesting fine line. And and so you have you pack all of that into uh, you know, this credible life and this incredible journey that she took. Um, and you pack that into her vanishing off the face of the earth alongside Fred Noonan. There was a second person on that plane, Fred, Fred Noonan. If you look him up was like the greatest nav celestial navigator of his time. He actually helped write and establish the, you know, the, uh, the Pan Am Clipper flight pass and everything across different oceans and everything. If there was going to be one guy you were going to go around the world with, that would be the guy. Um, and, and so these two just vanish at the, you know, into the, into the ether, essentially, uh, there's no wreckage, there's no oil slick, there's no remains, there's nothing. And there's, there's three bodies missing, essentially. There's Earhart's, there's Noonan's, and there's the body of that Lockheed Electra 10E, that plane. And to give it a little bit of perspective, you know, as Jen said, she's, you know, she goes on record, she's 200 miles out, 100 miles out. We must be on you, but cannot see you. She's, she's telling them, she feels like she's right there. Leo Bellarts, who, uh, through a very fun piece of, of, of audio technology and, and generate gener the generosity of, of Leo's family and Elgin long rest in peace, who was a researcher, we were able to take Leo Bellarts's original 1973 testimony and bring it into the show. So Leo Bellarts like basically came back to life and guessed it on the show, which was a, a really wonderful thing. Um, but you know, I, I think you, you got to look at all that and just think this is a woman who packed so much in and did so much and accomplished so much. And sadly would have was just getting started, would have accomplished I mean, she would have launched even further into the stratosphere had she returned. And I think uh, it adds to the to the tragedy that her and Noonan were so close. If they had hit Howland and, and, and actually made that that landing, they would have gone from Howland to Hawaii and from Hawaii to Oakland. And that would have been it. So they were like 95 percent of the way done with that flight uh, around the world equatorially at the you know, at the equator. And um you have to take, you have to carry that tragedy with you into this case and think about who she was. Think about why there's an Amelia Earhart day at NASA still, why she's still receiving letters at her birthplace home in Atchison, Kansas from kids now, like in 2022, that are still writing to her. You know, that's, that's a pretty, that packs a pretty powerful punch. And um, we don't know, we have no period on the end of this sentence, as we've said a couple of times in past uh, interviews and things it's it's a fascinating case and it will continue to, to fascinate but i think jen is absolutely right you'll i think we'll see this solved uh, in our lifetimes i think i think we'll put this one to bed at some point 
Um, whether it's the plane being discovered in the, you know, 18,000 feet below the surface of the ocean somewhere. And it's right where Amelia said it would might, it, it was likely at, or whether it's, it's bigger than that, whether she was a spy and it, you know, she was killed in Saipan. None of these endings that we've talked about tonight, um, none of them are pleasant. You know, she either hits the, hits the, the ocean and, and basically slowly sinks and dies in the middle of an ocean. Think about that. Just being in the middle of an ocean. That's, that's pretty scary. Um, and you're going down and you die. You either get, you know, she either dies of dysentery in a jail cell alone in Saipan in Japanese custody. She gets kicked into, into a shallow, uh, executed and kicked into a shallow grave. Um, or she comes back if she comes back and she, one of the, um, one of the sort of caveats of her coming back is that she can't talk to anybody she ever knew. She can't talk to her husband or her mother, her sister. She never flies again. So she sort of lives this really sad and, and lonely life. Um, and you know, so like there's no happy ending to this, you know, no matter what. And I think that's, that's not for, that's not any way for anybody to die, but for, for an icon like that, that, that meant so much to so many and continues to, that's the story, man. That's, that's like, that's, that's what you, you latch onto. And, and that's why this case is, is so, important now uh you know just shy of 85 years later i know that's a long-winded answer i'm sorry but that's that's <laughs> you know it's it, it's hard to wrap that into like two or three sentences but that's right, that's what you course. take that's where you start so start with that and then walk forward and that's where you'll you'll see where the fascination goes and does that by walking forward does that does the book that you are coming out with does it help that process to walk through all these different steps that's a that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. You know, I I guess we'll find out uh, when people read it. It's it's a comprehensive study. It's you know, if you've heard the show, uh, if you heard season one, you're, it's you know, it's a lot. It's the same thing essentially, but a written version. But you know, we've got a lot of those Easter eggs in there, and it's you know, this book is a is my love letter to the case. I worked for twenty years on this thing, and and really. Um, it's, it's my love letter and I hope it reads as a love letter to Earhart fans and to aviation fans, because, um, I think if you're coming into this as a general audience, uh, you know, to, to get to your question, um, I think it's a good, you know, it's, it's going to be four or 500 pages after the final. So, I mean, it's a good snapshot of like, okay, this is the case. There are a lot more theories. Don't get me wrong. It's not just these five theories. I'll, I'll be very blunt about that, but you know, it, it gives you a good snapshot. It'll, it'll certainly hopefully whet your appetite to where people can, do their own research and hopefully maybe be the ones to, to make some headway and to crack this case. I mean, that's, that's sort of the beauty of these, this, these historical cases is that everybody can take part in it. And I hope that this case uh, or this book that's coming out is, is uh, shows as that love letter that I, I always intended it to be. Right. Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on. I'm glad I got to meet you and Jennifer. I know she had to dip a little bit early. Yeah, but sure. Why don't you plug the name of the book? Play, plug sure. the name of your podcast, where they can find you at, and how they can get in contact with you. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this with me and, and having me on your show. Um, so, yeah, the, the book is called Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. Uh, it's going to be published via Beyond the Fray Publishing uh, on July 2nd on the 85th anniversary. You can get it via Beyond the Fray's uh, website, I believe, or the link to where you can get it. Amazon, it'll be it'll be on Amazon. It'll be on barnesandnoble.com. Uh, it might might make it to some brick and mortar stores. We'll see. Uh, you know, we'll see kind of how well it does. I think um, the, the podcast is vanished not to be not to be uh confused with the vanished which is uh, i love that show uh and up and vanished and it's such a popular word but uh, just vanished pod on twitter uh vanished pod on instagram on tiktok god help me we're getting there 
Um, and, uh, yeah. And then if you go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash vanished pod, that's our really active, highly active familiar Earhart discussion group. We talk about all the other cases we've covered too, but it's, it seems it's going to be dominated by Earhart primarily because of everything we have going on project wise. But, um, yeah, you know what? You can link to, uh, to all that stuff through those vanishedshow.com. That's where we'll be. And, uh, season three, we didn't really talk about it, but season three was announced. We are coming back for a season three. It's at a certain point, uh, we're sort of working behind the scenes on, on structure for that and kind of, you know, scheduling wise and everything. Um, Jen's about to get very busy. Uh, and well, you know, you could talk to her about that. And, you know, once you guys chat and go through all that, but, uh, yeah, that's where you can find us. We're all over the place. And where can they find your podcast at? Are you guys on all the major podcasting platforms? Yeah, that's right. Uh, every major pod podcasting platform you can think of, we're there. Uh, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcast, uh, you know, you name it, they're all there. Um, if you just search, if you search for Chasing Earhart Podcast, you'll see all that come up. You know, we have, we're on SoundCloud. That's how far back we go um, on the show and everything as well. But it's also on, you know, all the different uh, podcast platforms as well. And, uh, you know, I, I will tell you that we are, uh, you know, we are working on looking at bringing chasing your heart back as a podcast. Um, it, not, not as dominant as it was as far as like, you know, the amount of episodes we're going to put out, but I got a few tricks up my sleeve and, and some, some really cool guests that are going to come, come their way. So, so let me ask you this, man, you've, you've been around in the podcast space for a while. How yeah. has that evolved? I mean, you brought it up, right? You, you have a podcast that's still on SoundCloud. <laughs> How has it evolved for you? Like, what's that, that transition been like for you just from a, podcasters yeah that's a great question uh, you know there's just been this huge explosion and I, I i'm i'm not that i'm not that i'm pretty new uh from from the standards of, of podcasting i mean i i you know i'm a big fan of aaron and justin generation of why they've been doing it for a long time um and they're they're they just get better and better you know the show gets better uh, astonishing legends scott and forrest and they've been so great with us and uh partner with us on several Earhart projects uh, you know it, it the landscape is very flooded now um, it's, it's, it's very, very different than it was even, you know, five years ago, six years ago. Um, I, I think that, uh, everybody's sort of trying their hand at it, which I think is wonderful because you never know what talent's going to come out of that. You never know, you know, who's gonna, you know, what kind of a podcast is going to catch fire and latch on. And, and people are really excited about, you know, different genres. And I think what's really great about podcasting is it's kind of not unlike the explosion you've seen on social media with like, you know, with like things like TikTok and stuff, like you're, you're seeing, all these people come up with these podcasting ideas and and sort of put them out there. And there's like a there's almost like a, an internal niche for everything for every little podcast, but it's hard work. Um, and unfortunately, I, I see a lot of podcasts sort of fall by the wayside, um, just because you know, life gets in the way. And, uh, you know, we we experienced that season two was very difficult. It was like a year and a half long, never, never in a million years was it supposed to be a year and a half long, but life gets in the way, right. And then we had COVID happen. And then we had all these different things. Um, you know, Jen got married, and you know, all these, you know, we just had to stop and, and so I think uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, sort of the free forming market and podcasts are podcasts that are just sort of creating on a whim. Uh, and some of them are doing really well. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of these shows. And um, but I think you're yeah, I think the the drop off, you're going to see sort of what shows are going to sort of be the long you know, be in it for the long haul. And what shows are going to sort of like, hey, it was an experiment. We tried it, it didn't work out. Um, 
yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of people sort of sort of lose interest if they don't get like a million downloads on their first, you know, their first episode first or whatever. Thing, right, right. Yeah. And it's like it doesn't doesn't work that way unless you've got a huge name or a huge backing. Uh, you know, we're an indie show. We've been grinding on this man for a long time. I wasn't sure that we were even going to come back and do a season two. I wasn't sure anybody wanted to hear me talk about anything other than Earhart. But, you know, t- to Jen's credit, she said, no, let's I think it'll be I think we'll be OK. And, and we sort of have found our audience and we've, we've sort of been developing the show and the show's constantly evolving. And, and, um, I think that's what you kind of have to do. And, and, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the landscape with conventions and everything. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's been really fascinating to see it sort of just blow from, from jump street and just become really huge. I know we already kind of plugged the outro, but I, now I'm getting into the podcasting question. Yeah. Right? Cause, uh, yeah. Cause we have, uh, I, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of podcasters that listen, right? And everybody listens to everybody's podcast, which is awesome, right? So yeah, love that. I've only been around for a couple of years. It 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 started in the pandemic, but it's something that I wanted to do for for a long time, and I no experience kind of jumped into it. But you know, just in the I've been doing it for almost two years. Just in the two years, there like you said, there's a lot of drop off, man. What do you think causes that? Is that the I mean, you've seen it over the years. Is it just the, the the work aspect of how much they have to grind to to get it to be successful or to be successful in their mind? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, for having having good foresight into it, I I talked to a lot of podcasters. Uh, just cold. I just reached out to him before Scott and Forrest. I'll name drop them all day. They they're they're like brothers now, and I I. I I have a, a lot to, uh, I, I owe a big debt to them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people just don't realize how difficult it is. Um, I'll, and I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, we do the show, you know, those big four hour episodes, you look up our history I and mean, there's multiple four hour episodes in different series that we do. Um, you know, to edit four hours of content, uh, you know, to edit an hour of content, it takes me, I'm, I'm the sole editor in the show. It takes me arguably 25 to 30 hours to edit one hour of content. Um, so if you're doing a two and a half, three hour, four hour show, you know, it takes weeks, uh, weeks of time just to edit one. And, you know, you get you get burnt out because you're sitting here you're listening to the audio. You've listened to your own audio and your own voice and your own stuff for, you know, 10, 12 times patent doing multiple passes and quality control checks. You know that nobody wants to really do that unless you really love it. Uh, you're up at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning grinding on the show because you have a you know, you have a deadline, a self-imposed deadline, I should say, because you're and you're you're also producing your own content. You're right. you know, you're doing all your own social media. You know, people are waiting. And, you know, if you if you're lucky enough to build uh, you know, even a small audience like we've got, uh, you know, people expect it. People are, are are looking forward to it. And that's that's it's a blessing and a curse. It's the biggest honor. It's the biggest honor in the world. When we did the the, the D.B. Cooper show, uh, Jen couldn't participate in that one because she just had a, a, a shit ton on her plate. So I couldn't expect her to, to put in the time and effort uh, to do the show. So she had to she had to dip out of that one. Um, but I did the D.B. Cooper and I remember putting uh, we wanted to put it out on the 50th anniversary and we wanted to put uh, all three episodes. We did a three part series on D.B. Cooper. So that's like nine hours of content between those three episodes. Um, you know, and so like, but you know, you get people like posting screenshots of them listening to the episode when it first comes out, like, you know, at, at midnight, we literally dropped it at midnight or on, I'm sorry, on Thanksgiving Eve, right around the time DB Cooper would have boarded the plane. So like we try to take advantage of those little situations and do it. And, you know, it's an incredible amount of work. And I think people just get burned out. You know, um, it, it, it happens. It's not uh, it's not anyone's fault. But I, I think that'll also separate the people who really want this uh, from the people who are doing it more as a sort of a, a passive hobby. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I have another show called Me and My Friends that I do. I'll likely reach out to you to guest on it at some point. It's just a fun 
sort of like a Joe Rogan esque, not as long, of course, but you know, not as not as good a quality, I think, as the audio. We're not in a studio, um, but you know, uh, it's a podcast where I can sort of talk to everybody about their own shows and about overcoming failure and about working through their processes and kind of explaining all that stuff. And um, you know, I, I put that out as I as I feel like it. You know, I, I, I have. Uh, we're putting out our, our our season finale for season two right now. That's a hard show, uh, you know, t- to put out, and that's just like a, a just a one on one interview show. Uh, uh, Vanished is we have a lot of theatricality in it. We have a lot of effects. We have a lot of different stuff. We're dealing with multiple people. Um, it's a lot. So anybody who wants to do a show. Uh, I think it's going to hit you pretty hard in the face pretty quickly how much it's not just like get on a mic record and put it out. I mean, you could do that. Sure. Um, but it, it's one of those situations where you start putting more thought, you know, your audio gain, your levels, your, you know, how good is it going to sound in headphones versus how good is it going to sound in a car? You know, what's it made for? You know, all that stuff. Um, and I think it's just overwhelming to people. They think, oh, like anything else, it's going to be exciting. We're going to do the show. It's going to be fun. We're going to do, we're going to get a million downloads. And then when you go through all that, and if you, even if you put in the effort and, and you don't necessarily capture the results you want, it, it can be tough and it can be discouraging and it can be heartbreaking. But I, you know, I, I'm a grinder. I, I will always come back to this. I'll always do it because I love it. You know, I might not do it as consistently, but I, I love doing the show and, you know, I love doing promo for it. But um, it's one of those things, man. It's, it's, um, you know, you sort of separate the people who really love it, who've been doing it for a long time. You got to ask yourself, how are they doing it for so long? It's because they love it. It's because they love it. Um, that's it. I mean, if you love this, it's like anything else. And it's not special when it comes, if you love anything else, you're going to grind on it as hard as you can. Um, and you're not going to give up and you're not going to stop pushing forward. And, and, you know, that's, that's what we do. I mean, that's what everybody does. that really loves it. And, you know, you bring that up because I, I had no audio engineering background, no audio background, no podcasting, no recording in front of a mic, nothing before, you know, I was just like, I'm going to start a podcast. And I was one of those, I genuinely, I was one of those people. So I was like, oh, this is going to be fucking easy. This is, there's mm-hmm, nothing to mm-hmm. it. You, yeah, you yeah. record, you put the shit out, everybody listens. Oh my God, you're famous. Right. So, right. And, right. uh, you know, like, uh, I've, I've talked about it before, but my very first episode, it took me it took me like three weeks to edit it and it was mm-hmm. just frustrating. I was so mm-hmm. frustrated by the end, but I was like, but then I was like, you know what? I, re- I actually enjoyed it. It was done and I felt good about it, but I was like, how the fuck am I going to commit 40 plus hours a week mm-hmm. working a full-time job to editing? Like this is insane. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I, I stuck it out and I really, I am one of those people. I really enjoy the creative process. I enjoy meeting new people. I've met yeah. some amazing people in the podcasting community that I would yeah. have never, ever met before. So I've definitely enjoyed the journey and I'm, you know, I'm one of those people like you. I just, I enjoy the grind of it. It's, it's challenging. Yeah. Every week is challenging. And yeah. so it's that, that, oh, I can accomplish it and overcome it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to be comfortable. If, if I could say anything about podcast, well, just anything in general, but I mean, well, since we're on podcast, <laughs> uh, if I could say anything about, about anything that, that you do, uh, you know, whether it's a passion or a hobby or whatever, you have to be very comfortable being uncomfortable because success is very uncomfortable. And people think people think success is once you hit a certain spot, it's it's smooth sailing. Success is very uncomfortable. And if you can't if you can't get sort of intimately familiar with with door slamming in your face, with people telling, you no, uh, you know, with uh, with looking at your downloads and being God, it's we've only got, you know, X amount of downloads. We should have a lot more. What's going on if you can't be uh, comfortable in that position? then you're never going to be able to enjoy success. You're never going to be able to enjoy it once you get there because 
you know, it's very cliche, but it's it's the God's honest truth. The journey itself is the most important part because that's where you're going to spend 90% of your time. When we put an episode out, once the episode's out, man, it's gone. Like I don't, I let it go and it's gone. And the feedback is great. Even negative feedback is great. You have to, you have to be comfortable with receiving all of that and sort of living in all of that because um, that's the process. If you don't love the process, then you can never truly have the success that you need. Uh, you'll never attain that level of success that you sort of dream of that, that sort of fantastical fantasy level of success that everybody wants to, wants to attain. Right. So for me, I've just had to sort of turn inward toward the process and yes, it's frustrating. Yes. We, you know, we have issues where we have to, I have to step away sometimes and I have to, I have to clear my head or I have to go do something else. You know, I think the, the book is a shining example of that. There were multiple times multiple times that I just said, Hey, I'm just going to put this out as a PDF and be done with it. Like, I don't care about grammar. I don't care about this. I'm not going to do the book. Um, fortunately for me, I had people around me in my life, uh, that pushed me and said, no, you need to do this. Uh, I have a son, a 12 year old son that I, I, I want to be able to tell him when you commit to something, you're in till it's over. Whether if it doesn't pan out the way you wanted, that's okay. But as long as you, as long as you see it through to the very end, then you can confidently sort of wash your hands of it and say, I, I gave it everything I had. Didn't pan out the way I wanted. Um, I'm certainly not unfamiliar with disappointment and unfamiliar with projects on that I've had that just didn't pan out the way I wanted them to. Um, but you know, uh, it, it's all about sort of t- you know sort of turning a different direction and walking a different path and sort of making the most out of what you have. And and you know, you have to you have to be comfortable in that uncomfortable spot. Um, and that's really what success is. It's 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 tough. Success is hard. You know. Um, so yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on. I know we already did the outro and everything, but definitely go check out Vanished. Check out the Amelia Earhart story that he did on Vanished. And what was Chasing Amelia Earhart was the other uh, show? Chase, yeah, Chasing Earhart. So if you look in if you look in your podcatcher, Chasing Earhart podcast, it'll come up. Vanished. Oh, if you just type in Vanished, I think it comes up pretty easily, or you'll see it. Um, and uh, yeah, we're we're everywhere. And I, I would love I would love for your listeners to latch on and listen and send us feedback. I mean, we love it. I, that's what we do. And, and um, season three is coming eventually. <laughs> yeah. After Chris the book. Before, after the yeah. book. Right. After the Chris, book. Before yeah. we get out of here. Obviously, you already heard me ask Jen. So I'm going to ask you too. If yeah. you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? She hit it with spicy ketchup, man. I wasn't even going to think of that, but that's so true. Spicy ketchup's good. Um, I love ketchup in general. Um, you know, I've, I've, my, as I've gotten older, I've really shifted to like mustard. Um, so, but I, I'll say spicy ketchup, man. Spicy ketchup is a, that's a hard one to beat. Why? You know, there's, it, it's a good kick of like sweet and, and, and sweet and spice. You know, I, I love, I love, I've always loved food that like it, it, it's a, it's a sweet, it's almost like a double taste. So it'll hit you one way. And then like, as soon as it kind of like it's on your palate, it's like a different taste. Love that. That's also the reason why I can't drink beer uh, because all beer, all beer to me tastes the same. Oh, have you tried this log? No, it's all the same. It tastes the same. It's beer. Uh, for me, but that's just because my taste buds don't allow me to like, I can't taste, Oh, that's a Coors or that's a Miller or that's a Modelo. I, I can't do that. I it's all beer. So, um, I'm, I have sort of a, a weird, uh, weird palate and a weird taste bud set, but, uh, yeah, spicy ketchup. If it hits you different ways, I'm good with that. Well, definitely go check out the vantage podcast, uh, show Jen and Chris some love. Like he said, feedback is always welcome. Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and I hope you have a good day, man. Yeah. My honor, man. My honor. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner. 
walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and thanks for listening. This has been The Jury Room.